Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. My sermon title today is The Secret to a Happy and Successful Marriage. Keep in mind in the seventh chapter of Corinthians that, of First Corinthians, that Paul did not give us a comprehensive marriage manual. He only touched on a few issues. He certainly did not address all the issues that could possibly arise concerning marriage or concerning singleness, which is a part of what we'll be talking today about as well. Uh, He limited his discussion to certain issues that were happening in the Corinthian church, and some of those issues are applicable to us as well. And then he has advice on the issues of marriage as well as the issue of singleness. And it has some difficult spots that are easily misconstrued. We're going to try and untie those today so we understand better what he's trying to say. Some people come away from reading the seventh chapter of 1 Corinthians thinking that Paul is making the suggestion that singleness is morally superior to being married. And when we read this, you'll see where that could possibly be misconstrued. And consequently, the same people who think that think that Paul simply was not a big fan of marriage, only that it was a useful and legitimate way for undisciplined people to rein in their biological desires. But the fact is, Paul had great respect for marriage, and he knew it was an honorable thing and a God-ordained thing, And he knew the Scriptures well and was not in a disagreement with God's plan, as revealed in Genesis, when God said from the very beginning, it's not good for man to be alone. However, Paul in this chapter did tip his bias a little bit whenever he said, I wish all men were like me. And that is that he was content not to be married and to be fully devoted to serving God sacrificially. And... You'll, you'll see later on how Paul qualifies that, that that's not a command that he gave. And I've actually heard people throughout my life who have read that and said, the Bible says it's better not to be married. No, that's not what it says. It's what Paul's personal opinion was. And, of course, I said we'll see how he qualifies that before we're done with this. So as we get into this today, let me give you Paul's theology on marriage and singleness in a nutshell, so we know where we're going today, okay? Here's his theology. Are you single and you're content? Good for you. Are you married and content? Good for you. Are you single and you want to get married? Good for you. Are you married and want to be single? Forget it. So with that simple guideline... Let's tackle the seventh chapter. Paul writes, Now, for the matters you wrote about. If you're looking at the screen, you see there's quotation marks again. If you remember from last Sunday, when we see the quotation marks, what we are 
seeing is Paul is indicating this is something that the Corinthian church believed. As I called it last week, it was a motto that they had. So here, once again, Paul is putting this in quotations. It's a motto. This is not Paul's theology. This is not his teaching. So here's the quotation marks. Now, for the matters that you wrote about, here's the motto. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, end of quote. And then Paul takes over with his thoughts. But since sexual immorality is occurring... Each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, and that's what I was talking about we were going to see as we went on, and not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift Another has that. And that's all the Father will be able to make it in the seventh chapter today. But that's plenty. Now, the Corinthian church had a problem up to this point with basically not being holy enough. You remember the two problems, two major, well, the, the major problems they had was the major problem of disunity. But within the context of this disunity, they were divided over the issue of this man that was having this torrid affair with his own stepmother. And that was a problem of a sexual nature. And then in the previous chapter, Paul spent some time talking about how unrighteous it is for a person to be a man to be joined to a prostitute because there's this spiritual dynamic that happens, a spiritual connection there that is an affront to God, making themselves one with somebody who is obviously very ungodly. And now in the seventh chapter, Paul goes to the other end of the spectrum. Even though we're still talking about a sexually related problem, he goes from the immoral side over into a problem within the context of marriage. Now, in the Bible, I, th I know we all know this, but let me put this in very concise terms. In the Bible, there's only two kinds of sexual activity. There's that which happens within a marriage between a husband and a wife. That is good. It's legal. It's permitted. It's God-designed. And then the second class is everything that happens outside marriage between a man and a woman, and that is called sexual immorality. Two different classifications. Paul has dealt with sins in the other classification, sexual immorality, in a couple of ways so far. Now, he's dealing with a problem inside the marriage. He's forced to address an issue that amounts to basically extreme asceticism. I'm throwing out a $2 term there that many of you will pick up on, but I want to simplify this. It's just asceticism is just a severe discipline self-discipline that avoids all forms of indulgence for religious reasons. And extreme asceticism is the, practiced by the kind of people that we would typically say, and I hate to use the hackneyed old term, but you'll understand, so heavenly-minded you're no earthly good. 
We become so spiritual, so hyper-spiritual, that we lose touch with practicality and reality. And so this was happening in the Corinthian church, this tendency towards extreme discipline over self-indulgence. And that worked its way over to within the marriage. So when Paul, Paul quotes this, this motto in the church that they are saying it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, the ch- church was not saying outside of marriage. They were actually talking about celibacy within marriage. This was beginning to take hold uh, from a few people who were viewing themselves as spiritually superior to everybody else because they are so godly that they're now going to live a celibate life within the framework of their marriage. Well, obviously, unless both of you are on track with that, somebody is being ignored. And that's not a good situation within the framework of marriage. So Paul's response to this misguided motto was, yes, it's a good thing, but that should not apply to married people. Marriage is an institution of God, and it's a deeply spiritual matter. And the uniting of two into one is ordained by God and is a deeply spiritual matter. And the relationship between a husband and wife is to be a godly spiritual matter, insomuch that Paul even used that to express the relationship between Christ and the church. One does not legitimately and biblically get married just to have somebody to cook, to clean, to fix broken things, to provide safety, to provide security. Biblically, we get married to supplement the unfulfilled part of our life that only our gender counterpart can provide. Whenever Adam was alone and God said it's not good for him to be alone, He did not provide another man for him. He provided a female because in God's economy, he realized that's the missing component in any person's life is the opposite gender to fill that in. Now, the interesting dynamic here is, is there are so many differences that not only does that complement, but that conflicts so many ways. Men and women are different. Surprise, surprise. I remember about 10 years ago, it was one of the famous news magazines. It may have been, at the time, Newsweek, Time magazine, one of those U.S. News World Report. I don't remember what it was. That After years of trying to erase all the distinctions between men and women, suddenly they came out with this headline in this magazine, that scientists discover men and women are different. Our, our science world is brilliant. Thank God that they do all this research and uncover these deep, shocking truths. Well, of course we're different. And the miracle is whenever you bring these two together and they complement and they supplement, they also antagonize a little bit. And developing this oneness can be a real trick sometimes, can't it? Learning the art of being able to become one with somebody who in many ways is so different. I was reminded of that dramatic difference just this morning as I, I glanced on uh, Facebook and a friend of mine, a lifelong friend of mine uh, since we were just teens together, 
He had put on his Facebook, he said, my wife has yet again bought another pillow. Now, I don't know if all of you in Iowa understand how there's a gender distinction in that statement or not, but I read the comments, and all the women were going, so what's wrong with that? And all the men were scratching their head because we're like uh, in debt over pillows, you know. And buys more pillows than I buy shoes. I'm thinking it's a woman thing. I'm not sure. But there are these distinctions that bring color and dynamic and, and intrigue into relationship. And taking those two different ones and making them one is a miracle. But it's what God wants us to do. So therefore, Paul's advice to the men and the women in the Corinthian church, some who have gotten this idea that now they're so godly that they're going to live this life of celibacy in their marriage. Paul, in these verses, is not saying, I'd prefer you not to be married. But he's, his, his advice is, if you're married, you should not abandon your marital relationship and your marital duties one to another. Paul further states that if you insist on trying to live a celibate life while married, you will create a situation. This is what he says here. You will create a situation in which the denied spouse will most certainly be at a greater risk of moral failure because they will start seeking fulfillment outside of their marriage. Now, can you imagine the Apostle Paul being so clear, so blunt, so straightforward in addressing marital issues as to say if you have one who is not cooperating with the whole design and purpose of marriage you will drive the other to great temptation to look outside of marriage and unquestionably there have been a variety of reasons why a spouse has had an affair outside of their marriage there's not just one reason I understand that and you do too but one of the most common reasons one of the most common reasons is when one feels neglected by their spouse. I've read countless stories of women who feel abandoned by their husbands, and it just sometimes goes something like this. No matter how that wife may dress, no matter how they may do their hair, no matter how they may doll themselves up, they get compliments from everybody except their husband. He just walks past her like she's a piece of furniture, like she's irrelevant and the worst thing in the world. And I'm not trying to be funny today, but I'm sure there's a few humorous spots that comes out. But you know what? One of the worst things you can do, men, is not to notice the new hairdo. You've got to know that is the... You can't do that. I got, I got dangerously close to that precipice the other day. And I've just beat myself up relentlessly ever since. I had gone down for a couple of days to do some work on some property in Missouri. And in my absence, my wife decided she wanted to paint the kitchen. And so she got so industrious and went out and bought the paint and taped it off and painted it. And when I came home, she stood in the kitchen just smiling and grinning. And I went and got a drink and went back and sat down and... And finally, after I made two or three trips in the kitchen, she stood in the kitchen and said, Would you come in here, please? I came in, and like a dummy, I said, Yeah, what do you want? You know? 
I painted the kitchen. Well, I couldn't compliment her enough to make up for my negligence and my ignorance and my short-sightedness. And it really was a, a wonderful, magnificent thing she did. I was, once I finally saw it, <laughs> I was deeply impressed. I really was. But what's wrong with men that we've got this tunnel vision, you know? I'm just so thankful it wasn't a hairdo. <laughs> oh, man, you have to be so careful. But, you know, the women, they do all this to be, to be seen. And if the husband doesn't notice, it, it's crushing. My wife, I love that she gets all gussied up for church on Sunday. I just, I, I constantly admire her. And it goes something like this. She's just primping and preening and getting herself all dolled up on Sunday morning and, and more Sundays than not. I look at her and I say, you look particularly ravishing today. And the next thing she says, it's a script we've got. We've been practicing this, this script for years. You look ravishing today. She says, you're so blind. I say, there's nothing wrong with my vision. She says, I feel sorry for you. I say, you're still beautiful. She says, whatever. Why do women do that? I mean, because they keep wanting to come. That's what it is. Keep it coming. Whatever that, whatever that response is, the code is, give me some more. It's been going on for years. But then there's also cases where the man goes on the prowl because the wife has neglected him. She's too tired, too sick, too preoccupied, too depressed. Nothing left. She's given it all to the kids and the neighbors and the church and the women's sewing circle. And he feels like he's nothing but a steady stream of income. So that's why Paul gets so pointed and so graphic in this passage. He knows the stress and the dangers that come from a, a spouse that emotionally and physically abandons the other one. And so in essence, Paul says this. He says, celibacy is great. It has no place in a marriage, not just when one votes and elects to do this. You didn't get married to practice celibacy. If you try that, you will bring temptation and stress and destruction into your marriage. And then we hear a lot these days about women's rights. And you'll be proud to know that Paul was a champion of women's rights. Now, you won't hear people say that a lot. They think Paul was a misogynist, and he wasn't. Later on in the book of Corinthians, you're going to see there's a, there's a part there where Paul said women ought to remain silent in church. And that's where people always go when they go back and pick up the story of Paul and the writings of Paul and the attitudes and the theology and the philosophy of Paul. Say, he's, what a misogynist. And that's why they write off the Bible as being so antiquated and non-applicable because we are enlightened people today and we realize that uh, women's rights has, has made great advances since those old archaic days when Paul wrote these words. But I want to tell you something. That is a total misunderstanding. And I'm going to explain to you what Paul meant whenever he said women should remain silent in church, but I'm not going to do it today. Because I want you to come back every Sunday 
until we get over there. I've got a great explanation for this. And it has nothing to do with taping the women's mouths shut when they come in church. I promise you. Stay tuned, as they say. But I'm going to take you to this passage in the seventh chapter where you see that Paul, as a godly Christian theologian, recognized the need of women's rights. This other phenomenon that's happening alongside this issue in this passage doesn't appear very readily in our modern-day reading of the passage. But when you put this passage in its cultural backdrop, you can see that Paul is saying something very revolutionary, very shocking in his day. He's going against the cultural grain in a culture where women obviously were treated like second-class citizens, and they were maybe only a notch or two above slaves. They were not on the social level of men, but that's not what Christ taught. That's not what Paul taught. That's not what the church promoted. They were in a culture where that was true, but that was not Christianity. And Paul was the first to advance this, that this is not the way we view women in Christianity. First of all, I want you to notice in this passage that Paul indicates both husband and wife have equal mutual duties one to another, not just the wife to the husband. The husband has a duty to the wife. You have a responsibility in developing your relationship with your wife constantly and being sensitive to her needs and seeing the paint job and seeing the hairdo. You have a responsibility. You have a duty. She is a person with emotional needs, and she has those needs met first and foremost by her husband. You have a duty, mister. And if we have lived too long under a modern culture in church that has minimized the responsibility of the man and his only responsibility is bring home a paycheck or provide uh, security or provide safety or be that, that tower of strength, then you're missing the whole point. There's a lot of intricate stuff that goes on that men, you have duties. And the one thing that Paul does is he says, both of you equally have responsibilities. Men, you're not getting off the hook. The obligation of the husband to the wife is the first thing that Paul mentions. So when he starts saying that you two have duties, he doesn't start with saying, first of all, first and foremost, wives, you have duties to your husband. He takes the husband to task first. Now, that's something you may not have noticed, but that would have been a reversal of the order in that culture for him to start with the husband in chastising him or correcting him. He would have started with the wife in that culture. And then if there was anything that the husband needed to do, he would have said, and by the way, men, you could do a little bit to help this out as well. But Paul starts with laying it out on the husband first, totally counter-cultural in what he does. And then in the fourth verse, Paul mentions this time the duties of the wife first and says the wife does not have authority over her own body, but in that culture, Paul would have stopped had he been a part of the mentality of that culture. He would have said, women, you don't own your own body. Your, your husband owns it. End of discussion. But here's where, once again, he goes counter to culture, and he says, and men, you do not have control over your body. That belongs to your wife. In other words, what he's saying, there is a mutual surrender here 
in the marriage relationship. That you don't have two autonomous people. You have two people who are yielding themselves to the other in every way. We're not just talking in the physical way. We are talking in every way you are yielding. You are submitting. And a lot of times we've thought about the many years that they've taught about women ought to submit to their husbands, and we understand that. But we're missing the point that Paul put forward about men submitting to their wives. And I know that raises the hackles. Sometimes, I will not submit to my wife. Now I know what the problem is in this marriage. I'll have an appointment with you tomorrow. He said there is a mutual submission. That's the way relationships work. Giving and taking and more giving than taking. This principle is critically important to understand for a healthy marriage. It harkens back somewhat to the previous chapter in which Paul teaches, our body belongs to God. Remember that? Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Now, for the Christian married people, there are two levels of relationship. There's a relationship where your body belongs to God and you honor Him with your body. And the second level of relationship is your body belongs to your spouse, and you honor your spouse with your body. So these two things both add up to surrender. They've entered into a covenant as marriage people in which they concede autonomy over their own person to each other. One of the big problems we have in marriage is the failure to understand this principle, this God-ordained principle of mutual surrender. Couples who are determined to play king of the hill in their marriage will struggle their entire marriage to keep it together. Two autonomous, independent people who said we will be married, we will share a house, we'll maybe share a bank account, but we're going to live our own lives. You do not understand the God-ordained design of marriages. You don't live together to be two independent, autonomous people. You live together to become one, and you become one by mutual surrender. And then Paul said, do not deprive one another. Now, if you could read Greek, I don't read Greek. I use a concordance to find Greek words. I'm not a Greek scholar. Greek scholars would be embarrassed of my attempts at Greek. But if we read Greek, you would discover that over in the previous chapter, we was talking about them having a problem suing one another, Christians suing one another. You remember when he said, wouldn't it be better if you would just be willing to be cheated? That was the word that was translated from the Greek word. It's the exact same Greek word that is translated deprived. So even though the translators chose a different word to bring into the English, it was the same word that he used when he said it would be better for you to be cheated than to go to lawsuits. And then he comes over and he says, do not cheat one another, which maybe cheat's not the best word, maybe deprive's not the best word, but get, get the understanding. Same Greek concept. In other words, there was something there in this cheat or in this deprive that is that it's it's not a proper relationship to have if you're mistreating your brother and trying to sue him you're cheating him if you're 
depriving your spouse, you're cheating them. There's something that's out of kilter here. So Paul makes this point that one spouse is trying to force an unwilling spouse to live in this arrangement of marriage celibacy, and it's basically defaulting on the marriage agreement. And Paul says, this is morally wrong. Folks, if I was making this up, you could stone me. But since it's God's word, you're only stoning the messenger. If both decide they're happy to live in a platonic relationship, more power to you. Everything's grand. But one cannot independently opt out of or ignore the relationships and the commitments and the duties to the other. Paul says, I'll say this as a concession. Now, here's where I told you he was going to make his uh, qualification for what he says. I say this as a concession. And when he says that, he's not covering what he's just said. He's looking forward now to the next statement. He'll say, I, he says, I say this. And then he says the concession. Not a command. I wish all of you were as I am. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, one has another gift. Paul's concession points to the fact that he liked being single. He was happy being single. He recommended being single. It's just like any of us. Whatever state you're in, if you're happy, you want to say, I like this, why don't you try it for yourself? But on the other hand, you have to realize, not everybody's going to be happy like that. I'm happy being married. I recommend being married. But that doesn't mean just because I'm happy being married, you're going to be. So Paul says, I make a concession. I like it. But I realize it's not for everybody. That's what he means when he says one has one gift and another has another. Paul was fully content to be single because you think about Paul's duties, Paul's job. How would Paul have been as effective as the missionary, the apostle, with a wife and kids? How, how does he go out and hazard his life and say, it doesn't matter if I die here today or not, if he's got a wife and kids at home waiting for him to come back? If he's got to go home once in a while and see them. He can't just be gone for years on end and say it doesn't matter. They'll take care of themselves. They'll find their way. He has duties, his responsibilities, and he was free of that. And Paul went wherever God led him. He didn't have to go back home and check on anybody. He didn't have responsibilities to a son, to daughters. He was totally free. And because that was Paul's calling, he thought it was great. I am free to serve God. Now, when we carry that to an extreme, some people have thought that Paul was implying that if we will all just not get married, we'd be free to serve God. You realize if we all did that, there'd be very little Christian population left after a while. Paul's saying, I like my lifestyle. It fits me well. It suits my calling. But he quickly said, it's not going to work for everybody, and I understand that. Now, there are, within Christianity, we have 
some ministers, priests, who take a vow of celibacy, which means that they will not get married. And that's fine. They have committed themselves. That's what they have chosen. But then we've got many ministers who do marry. And that doesn't make them less spiritual because they are married and in the ministry also. So what are you designed for? Maybe you're not gifted to drop everything and sell everything you've got and go be a missionary. Maybe you have family obligations that keep you from doing that. As much as you might have a heart for missions, maybe that's not going to work for you. Maybe you're not gifted to do that. It, it, it doesn't matter what society expects of you. It doesn't matter what your friends expect of you. What matters is what's your gifting. What are you designed for? Love God. If you're single and be celibate, that's fine. Do you want to get married? God will bless your marriage. If you are married, you, you've agreed to do a lot of surrendering of your autonomy and your personal rights in order to achieve oneness in your marriage. So, as I said, the title of my sermon is The Secret to a Happy, Successful Marriage. And we've hit on that. The secret is surrendering totally one to another in your relationship so that their priorities become, as far as you're concerned, your priorities. And you say, well, isn't one going to get their way the whole time? Not if both are surrendering. When you're both laying it all on the table, there's negotiation there. And you're going to fight for, mister, you're going to fight for her right to have her way. And she's going to fight just as equally as hard for your right to have your way. And, you know, my wife and I, probably the most common time we do this is right after Sunday looking for where we're going to go eat. How many of you know that's what it comes down to? I say to my wife, where do you want to eat? She says, I don't care. Where do you want to eat? No, no. We could have been there and ordered and ate. By the time we figure out, total surrender. But what have you chosen? Singleness? Marriage, whatever. <clears throat> Honoring God, number one, with integrity. Because I said there's only two kinds of sexual activity. That within marriage, between a man and a woman, and everything else is sexual immorality. Or, within the bounds of marriage, glorifying God with the two of you, becoming totally surrendered one to another. Bow your heads.